Oh, okay. <laughs> You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks for listening to Hold That Thought. I'm your host, Claire Navarro, and for today's episode, I had the chance to talk with Professor Eric Herzog about the science of circadian rhythms. Think about your typical day. If you're like many people and other animals, your biological clock is roughly linked to the everyday cycle of sunlight and darkness in your environment. Here at Washington University in St. Louis, Dr. Herzog studies the circadian rhythms that drive our bodies to follow this 24-hour schedule. Today, we'll learn about the part of the brain that serves as the master clock, and we'll get a glimpse into what's going on at the molecular and cellular levels. Here's Dr. Herzog. One of the fun things about studying circadian rhythms is that they are probably in every living organism. The clocks that generate the daily rhythms that we're familiar with in terms of wake and sleep in mammals regulate just about any physiological process you can think of, from the addition of new cells on the surface of your eye to your cornea, to hair growth, to the likelihood of a hormone being released in your body. In other living organisms, uh, all the way back to probably the first living organisms on the planet, archaebacteria, we now have evidence for circadian rhythms in every phyla across all species. So circadian rhythms affect every living thing you can think of. But in mammals, which Herzog primarily studies, these patterns in part depend on a tiny area of the brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, or SCN. The SCN is located at the base of the brain, just above where the optic nerves cross. It's about a millimeter by a millimeter by a millimeter large. And that one spot is sort of the master circadian clock in probably all mammals and perhaps all vertebrates. Part of what it means to be the master circadian clock is that this part of the brain is vital for something that seems totally natural, the daily cycle of going to sleep and waking up. Our activity is very much dependent upon our SCN. If we get rid of the SCN, if it's destroyed in a horrible accident, then the organism can still wake up and go to sleep just fine, but no longer with a regular schedule. So you wake up every 20 minutes, then 40 minutes, and then 25 minutes, and you're at a very irregular schedule. As Herzog mentioned earlier, circadian rhythms affect much more than the behavior of going to bed and waking up at a certain time. As the master clock, the SCN synchronizes timing throughout your body. The SCN is the master clock, we say, in the way you might think about how the ATM system is set up, the money machines that we withdraw money from. They all have their own little clocks, right? And they depend upon that clock to know when you withdrew money from the ATM machine. But they actually don't run all by themselves keeping time. Uh, they have to all run on perfectly synchronized clocks. And the way they synchronize is there's a master clock in Boulder, Colorado, as I understand it, that sends out a synchronizing signal to all the money machines. And our brains are organized in a very similar way in that the master clock is the SCN, which is telling all the other cells in our brain and in our body what time it is according to the central atomic clock. 
Let's think a bit more about this ATM analogy. An ATM doesn't rely upon the master clock alone. Each machine has its own clock. And the same is true in the body. Amazingly enough, individual cells also follow approximately 24-hour cycles. We believe now that every single cell in our body has the capacity to keep 24-hour time. So we can take some cells from our skin, for example, from a cheek swab, grow them in a dish, and they will show daily rhythms in gene expression all by themselves in a dish. And normally when they're in the body, we think they are obeying synchronizing signals from the master clock in the SCN. So how exactly does a skin cell from a cheek swab, or any other sort of cell, act as a clock? The way the rhythm gets generated in each cell is through a pretty simple-to-understand feedback loop. First, a gene turns on and makes a product. That product gets turned into a protein that goes back into the cell's nucleus. And once back in the cell's nucleus, that protein turns off the gene's expression. And then the gene turns off, the product gets degraded, the protein goes away, the negative suppression of that gene goes away, and the gene can turn back on again. Take a guess at how long this cycle lasts. And takes about 24 hours for that gene to turn on and then turn itself off again, and then for it to turn back on again. So we call this an autoregulatory negative feedback loop. And it turns out there's a handful of key genes that are involved in that timing loop. We call them clock genes because their central function appears to be to help cells keep 24-hour time. Because your cell's timing is based in part on genetics, and clock genes in particular, your body's natural timing relates to your genetics. So if you're an early bird, it's likely that your mother or father is also an early bird. Sometimes these genetic differences are more extreme than others. Now there are people, we're not all the same, we're genetically different from each other in small ways. And one family in Utah has a difference in their gene, the period two gene, that actually causes their clock to run fast. They can still synchronize to the light-dark cycle and wake up every day at the same time. But because their clock runs fast, they synchronize with a different wake-up time than, let's say, the wild-type people. And uh, they actually wake up in the early morning hours around 3 in the morning. And they go to bed every night at about 7 o'clock at night. And they, so they get the same amount of sleep as everybody else, but they're shifted so that they're extreme early birds. And they actually name this familial advanced sleep phase syndrome. And that's, we think, strictly due to the uh, mutation in the period 2 gene. And once again... This isn't only a human phenomenon. So you can take that polymorphism from that gene and put it into mice, and they will wake up early, and they will have a fast clock. You can take this polymorphism and put it into fruit flies, and they also will wake up early and run fast. Of course, mice and fruit flies don't have things like work schedules and alarm clocks to dictate their daily sleep cycle. 
here's where there's a major difference between the way that modern humans and other organisms respond to their circadian rhythms. In general, organisms live in a place where the schedule doesn't change very much from day to day. And so we can synchronize to the 24-hour cycle and not worry too much whether we're a plant or a chipmunk about synchronizing to the slightly longer days or the slightly shorter days um, as we go through the year. We are adapted to do that. Humans have, in the last 120 years, made a few changes to that plan. We uh, invented artificial lights and uh, the ability to fly across time zones. So now suddenly we can experience dramatic changes in our schedule that can be completely disconnected from the environmental light dark cycle. For example, in the case of people living on shift work schedules who often will work in the nights for five days. And there our circadian clocks have not yet adapted to actually make those rapid changes in our schedules. And so we're all quite familiar with jet lag. And now there's very active research in showing that jet lag has real consequences, especially if you do it chronically on your health and well-being. Speaking of ongoing research, let's turn to Herzog's own work. His lab explores questions about how biological clocks normally sync to the light-dark cycle, how the SCN communicates with cells throughout the body, and how individual cells, each of which has its own approximate 24-hour clock, communicate with one another. In the future, this type of work could have, among other things, pharmaceutical applications. So we're interested in how the system works normally. We're interested in what happens when the system gets disrupted. And as a result, we become interested in drugs that may become therapeutics or minimally help us to understand how the system normally works. And one example of that is a drug that we were using for some experiments on trying to understand how the cells in the circadian clock communicate with each other. And the drug we're using is, is actually an extract from a berry that you can find in Asia. It's called the Indian fishberry, and the extract is called picrotoxin. And it turns out we've known about this drug for a long time. It can cause seizures in people. Um, so they're called Indian fishberries, I think, because the uh, fishermen use them to throw them in the water. They, they excrete this toxin, and it causes fish to have little seizures float up to the surface, and they can collect the fish. So what does a toxin that causes fish seizures have to do with circadian rhythms and the SCN? In this case, we were using it to block the known target for this drug, which is a receptor for a molecule called GABA, a transmitter called GABA. And that's what we think causes this, the seizures when um, picrotoxin is used. We discovered that it had a really big effect on the circadian clock. It shortened the period dramatically, even more than the mutation in the family in Utah. It could shorten the period from 24 hours all the way down to about 17 hours, which was bigger than any known drug and bigger than any known genetic change in the circadian clock. So we were really surprised by this because we already knew that changing blocking GABA receptors didn't change the period of the clock, didn't speed it up. And so we were wondering if maybe we had somehow made a mistake. 
We went out and bought more picrotoxin from other sources just to see if maybe our stuff wasn't clean. Turned out it was fine. We got the same results again. And then we started to think, well, maybe there's something special about where it's binding and looked closely and discovered, in fact, it's shortening the period of the clock not by binding to GABA receptors, but by binding to some novel target. And this novel target then becomes a really interesting target for us. It's a point of great sensitivity in the circadian clock, where if you can touch that spot in the clock, you can really speed up the clock and maybe synchronize to, for example, a trip to Europe where you have to advance your clock by many hours. You need to speed up your clock when you fly east. And maybe drugs like picrotoxinum which you should not take. It's a toxin. It's called picrotoxinin for a reason. But it might help us to discover drugs that would allow us to shift our clocks more readily to the big changes that we try to make when we travel, for example. So if the picrotoxin wasn't binding to GABA receptors, what was it binding to? How did this drastic change in the circadian clock come about? Those are questions that Herzog is still trying to answer. So we spent uh, the last year trying to discover what does picrotoxin bind to, and we don't know the answer to that at this point. We don't actually know whether the picrotoxinin is binding to something on the outside of the cells or on the inside of the cells, whether it actually goes inside to affect the activity of proteins or other molecules inside the cells. So that would be an area for us to pursue in the future. When it comes to biological clocks, there is still much to learn. We just heard about one of Herzog's research areas, but there are others as well, including a major project in collaboration with Washington University's medical school. So working with Jean Nurbone in the medical school here at Washington University, our labs have been collaborating for the last few years to try and understand how the biological clock inside individual cells tells cells to be excited during the day and to be quiet during the night. So it turns out if you record the electrical activity of the SCN, much like you could imagine recording the beating of your heart with an EKG or recording the activity of your brain um, with an EEG, we can actually record the electrical activity of individual cells with much smaller electrodes than the big pads we'd use to record your heartbeat or your brain waves. But we can see that these cells actually fire during the day and they're almost silent during the night. We're very interested in how the biological clock controls that excitability. Many thanks to Eric Herzog for contributing to Hold That Thought. You can find a link to his faculty and laboratory pages at thought.artsci.wustl.edu. That's thought.artsci.wustl.edu. Thanks for listening.